You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Patch Tuesday notes, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee hears from the Twitter whistleblower, a joint warning of IRGC cyber activity, Rob Boyce from Accenture on cyber criminals weaponizing leaked ransomware data, Chris Novak from Verizon describes his participation in the CISA advisory board, and Ukraine reiterates confidence in its resiliency. From the CyberWire studios and Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. Some quick notes on Patch Tuesday before we move on to the usual fare of threats and vulnerabilities. This week, Microsoft... Apple, SAP, and Adobe have all rolled out patches and software upgrades. Consult vendors for details. And the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday released five industrial control system advisories. Again, users should consult your vendors for information on mitigations. Yesterday, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee heard testimony from Peter Mudge Zatko, now familiarly known as the whistleblower, on his allegations of privacy and security problems at Twitter. The committee chair, Senator Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, and the committee's ranking member, Senator Grassley, Republican of Iowa, expressed their concerns about Twitter. Both were concerned about data security and privacy. Senator Durbin wanted Twitter to do more to censor hate speech and misinformation. Senator Grassley warned of Twitter's potential exploitation by foreign intelligence services. Zatko, whom we'll henceforth refer to by his handle, Mudge, described his responsibilities when he was part of Twitter's executive team and explained why he was testifying. From November 2020 until January 2022, I was a member of Twitter's executive team. In my role, I was responsible for information security, privacy engineering, physical security, information technology, and Twitter global support. 
I'm here today because Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. What I discovered when I joined Twitter was that this enormously influential company was over a decade behind industry security standards. The company's cybersecurity failures make it vulnerable to exploitation, causing real harm to real people. He complained that the company's executive team chose to disregard warnings of security problems, preferring instead to mislead the board, its employees, its customers, the public, and legislators. Perverse incentives operated to drive the executives in that direction and enmeshed the company in two basic problems. Mudge said, And when an influential media platform can be compromised by teenagers, thieves, and spies, and the company repeatedly creates security problems on their own, this is a big deal for all of us. When I brought concrete evidence of these fundamental problems to the executive team and repeatedly sounded the alarm of the real risks associated with them, and these were problems brought to me by the engineers and employees of the company themselves, the executive team chose instead to mislead its board, shareholders, lawmakers, and the public instead of addressing them. This leads to two obvious questions. Why did they do that? And what were the problems and vulnerabilities identified? And that's what I'm here to talk about. So first, why did they do that? To put it bluntly, Twitter leadership ignored ignored its engineers because key parts of leadership lacked the competency to understand the scope of the problem. But more importantly, their executive incentives led them to prioritize profits over security. Senator Durbin was concerned about the limitations of informed consent and asked whether the wordy end-user license agreements actually amount to realistic consent. Senator Grassley pursued his inquiry about an espionage threat with questions about the range and accessibility of the personal information Twitter collects. In his response, Mudge brought up an interesting point about Twitter's engineering culture and the infrastructure that supports it. Twitter doesn't maintain a distinct development or testing environment. So Twitter has engineers and non-engineers. Twitter does not have, at least when I was there, which was up until January of 2022, does not have a testing environment or a development or staging environment. This is, this is an oddity. This is an exception uh, to the norm. Most companies will have a place where you test your software, where you build it, where you make sure it's working the way you want it to. Think about somebody building an an airplane um, and saying, like, I'm going to put it in a wind tunnel. I'm going to build it in an environment. I'm not going to put passengers on it, put it in the air, and then figure out how to build it or tweak the engines at that point. Twitter just has the production environment, the running systems, the live data. When you become an engineer, which is half of the company are engineers, you are by default given some access to this live production environment. You are doing your testing you are doing your work on live systems and live data, irrespective of where you are in the world as an engineer. It became clear in the questions and answers that the senators and the whistleblower all regarded Twitter as having been compromised by foreign intelligence services. China, India, and Saudi Arabia are all thought to have succeeded in placing agents on Twitter's payroll. Mudge said, in effect, that the company had no way of finding such insider threats, constraining their activity, 
or remediating the damage they might have done. Other than the uh, person who I believed with high confidence to be a foreign agent placed in a position uh, from India and from, uh, it was only going to be from an outside agency or somebody alerting Twitter that somebody already existed, that they would find the person. What I did notice when we did know of a person inside acting on behalf of uh, a foreign interest as an unregistered agent, uh, it was extremely difficult to track the people. There was a lack of logging and an ability to see what they were doing, what information was being accessed, or to contain their activities let alone uh, set steps for remediation and possible reconstitution of any damage. Senator Klobuchar, Democrat of Michigan, wanted to know how willing Twitter was to knuckle under from requests by foreign governments to censor content. She made particular mention of Russia, and Mudge saw this particular risk as a function of executive incentives, inability to manage data, and self-delusion about the governments in question. I understand to be it out of a frustration of the inability to perform, and this kind of goes into content moderation, which we talked about before, and while that wasn't my main ballywick, and I've been informed I shouldn't go into details about conversations I've had with Twitter uh, counsel, there was a, we don't really have the ability and tools to do things correctly. This is a lot of work. It's not, you know, driving our main executive incentive goals. Is there a way that we can simply punt? And since they have elections, doesn't that make them a democracy? Senator Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, wanted to know how high up in Twitter management the decisions to mislead government regulators, Mudge alleges, were taken. To the CEO, I do not know to what level inside the board uh, they uh, did not know because of misrepresentation or uh, chose not to push. There was general comment on Twitter's alleged indifference to U.S. regulatory risk, including those imposed by the consent decree Twitter entered into with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. It was clear from the senators' questions and comments that they thought the FTC's authorities and resources were unequal to the task of regulating large social media platforms like Twitter. Whether this might be addressed by reforms surrounding the FTC or by the creation of an entirely new agency was unclear. All of these were discussed. There may be an international model ready at hand, however, for all of its apparent indifference to the consequences the FTC might bring. Zotko said that Twitter took French regulators much more seriously than they did American agencies. Thus, Gallic regulatory teeth may be better adapted to keeping big tech on the straight and narrow than the Yankee choppers so far seem to be. CISA and its partners have added their warning to those that have drawn attention to Iranian cyber activity this week. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps has continued to exploit known vulnerabilities for initial access. In addition to exploiting Fortinet and Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities, the authoring agencies have observed these APT actors exploiting VMware Horizon Log4j vulnerabilities for initial access. Exploitation of known vulnerabilities is a long-standing practice. The concentration on extortion is somewhat more novel for an Iranian threat actor. CISA says the IRGC-affiliated actors have used their access for ransom operations, including disk encryption and extortion efforts. After gaining access to a network, 
the IRGC-affiliated actors likely determine a course of action based on their perceived value of the data. Depending on the perceived value, the actors may encrypt data for ransom and or exfiltrate data. The actors may sell the data or use the exfiltrated data in extortion operations or double extortion ransom operations, where a threat actor uses a combination of encryption and data theft to pressure targeted entities to pay ransom demands. A full set of indicators of compromise, advice on mitigation, and a set of preventative best practices accompany the alert. Cyber operations proper have remained relatively quiet, or at least inconsequential, during Ukraine's current counteroffensive, although there are reports from the UK and elsewhere of a continued uptick in distributed denial-of-service attacks against financial services. And finally, Wired this morning published an interview with Yuri Shyol, director of Kyiv's equivalent of CISA. He offers a moderately encouraging picture of the war from Ukraine's point of view. Russia has moved into a phase of cyber war in which it's largely targeting softer civilian targets. The director stated, Our attitude remains the same. We treat them as criminals trying to destroy our country invading it on the land, but also trying to disrupt and destroy our lifestyle in cyberspace. And our job is to help defend our country. He's also at pains to stress that Russian cyber operations represent a threat to nations other than Ukraine, stating, The whole civilized world needs to recognize that the threat goes beyond Ukraine. Cyberspace has no boundaries. If there's any attack perpetrated against the cyberspace of one country, by default it's affecting and attacking other countries as well. Coming up after the break, Rob Boyce from Accenture on cyber criminals weaponizing leaked ransomware data, and Chris Novak from Verizon describes his participation in the CISA Advisory Board. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Robert Boyce is global lead for cyber crisis and incident response services at Accenture, and I recently spoke with him about some research he and his colleagues published tracking how cyber criminals are weaponizing leaked ransomware data for follow-up attacks. So we've seen, um, and then this honestly, this is personally fascinating to me. So I love talking okay. about this. <laughs> but we have, uh, you know, we've had this string of ransomware attacks uh, for the last, you know, a couple of years now, and it's been, you know, pretty heavy with the affiliate programs and all of that. And so what we've now started to research is we took uh, a look at the twenty, the top twenty leak sites, and. Those leak sites are uh, with all the victim uh, data that has been uh, published through there. And we started to see a really interesting trend that um, after a company has had their data disclosed, the attackers are now going through that data to learn as much as they can about the people, the profile, the, the inner business workings of an organization, and then leveraging that for very sophisticated um, business email compromise attacks. So, again, business email compromise, not new. But they're able to get so much fidelity in the data that has been disclosed from the victims of ransomware that they can now, with much more you know, certainty, execute a, a better a business email compromise attack because they have yeah. so much data. Really fascinating. It's, is your sense that this is um, a second round of adversaries here, that this, you know, different groups are, are combing through this, or, or might it be the same group you know, coming back for more? Yeah, it's. I mean, great question. It could be either. I, I think. I think we've just been so focused on the threat of ransomware that um, we basically, once we get through that and we do the investigation, we you know we go through the forensics, we help maybe recover business operations. That we all congratulate ourselves and job done. Let's go back to business. And then we've really not had the foresight to think about well, all that data that was just released. What could people do with that? And we're seeing the attackers actually index the data making like doing basically their own big data analytics on on what they're being able to get so that they could create this. So it could be, you know, it could be the same adversaries. It could be, you know, a uh, a second set of adversaries that have now just thought, what can we do with this data? Um, so it's hard to say. We haven't seen a real correlation there yet, but yeah, it's, it's just still interesting to me. Yeah. As a defender, is it in your best interest to also gather up this data and catalog it yourself to see where your, your weak spots may be? Yeah, so I find most organizations do that as part of the IR process because they need to understand the data that could have been stolen or was stolen. So, Or when it does get disclosed, I find most organizations do go and retrieve their own data or have someone do that for them, and they have to go through it. But what I'm not seeing is them take any action based on that. So they may like take a look at saying, okay, these user accounts may have been used as part of the attack or these Email addresses may have been disclosed, but they very rarely, well, they will change the passwords typically, but they very rarely will take any additional action on, say, putting additional monitoring on those email addresses that were disclosed uh, as an example, or, you know, or really looking into what business processes may be impacted uh, by the data that was taken and, and lost to think through this type of attack scenario. Right. So it's, it's a, so they usually have it, but they're not typically uh, thinking about what the implications could be outside 
of standard privacy or other regulations that they need to comply to. Is that the, the primary take home then or, or are there other action items here as well? I mean, there's always like there's always the standard follow up actions from a breach that people need to like the basic hygiene. Uh, but when we're talking about the data aspects out again, outside of the, you know, the requirement to disclose or the requirement to notify either customers, employees, et cetera. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're not really thinking about that. And I'm, quite honestly, Dave, I'm not even, I mean, it would take a quite a um, sophisticated partner to be able to think through like, what are all the possibilities that people could do with this data if they'd have it? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think the take home would be, you know, obviously do the basic hygienes, given the data that was lost and what your, your obligations are. Uh, but now we're starting to see the emphasis really needs to be put on thinking through the additional business implications of that data, what could be, what could be used with it, what types of processes may have been disclosed as well. Um, so yeah, it's going to just definitely going to have to be a lot more thought put into that than there has in the past. Do organizations need to worry about some of the, the liability and, and regulatory uh, consequences of something like this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're, they're usually pretty well in tune with their regulatory obligations related to data, whether it's mm. privacy or you know, whatever additional um, you know, regulations may exist depending on their industry and, and you know, what those may be. Um, and they're usually very well coached by their internal and outside counsel on what those obligations are and what they have to do. Um, I so I, think, I find that that's pretty well known. It's the other data that people just aren't putting two and two together to really, you know, like, so for example, the, the, the procurement data or the being even, even able to get enough procurement data to know when a standard payment is made to a specific vendor who initially, who, who makes that payment typically, who authorizes it, who executes it, where it goes. And so when you know that pattern, it's much easier to say then, well, I'm going to impersonate the employee or the partner and start a new transfer um, because it's within the bounds of the pattern. So it's, you know, right. it's, it's, it's really super uh, sophisticated. Yeah. Even just knowing the, the internal rhythms and cadence that Correct. a company uses. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's why it becomes fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Rob Boyce, thanks for joining us. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Novak. He is Managing Director for Security Professional Services at Verizon. Chris, always great to welcome you back. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some stuff that you are active in, in addition to your work there at Verizon. You are actually an advisory board member with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Can you give us some insights on what it's like to be part of that group? Sure. Yeah, I would say honestly, it's uh, it's maybe not to, to be too cliche, but kind of a dream come true. I've always looked at opportunities in which we can take what we learn in cyber and share it with others. You know, it, even going back to the early days of working at Verizon, you know, we put together things like the data breach investigations report, and the real genesis behind that was how do we share what we see, what we learn, what we know with the community at large to try to make everybody safer. Right. The the concern is there's there's no restrictions or rules on how the threat actors operate, collaborate, and share, and we need to do everything 
everything we can to, you know, similarly collaborate and share and, and understand what it is that we see in the threat landscape that we can all use to better defend and protect ourselves. And in that advisory capacity, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm deeply passionate about is how can we take what it is that, you know, we're seeing and bring that to, you know, for example, some of the investigations that the, the Cyber Safety Review Board within CISA are, are working on. And how do we take that experience and build on that, right? How do we actually, you know, develop, you know, new recommendations or other ways in which we can help our, our, our friends in the government mature what it is that they might be doing, help our, our partners in critical infrastructure secure that because by virtue of securing that, we're essentially making the world a safer place for you and me. Um, and then also, mm. how does that, you know, how does that expand from there out to the, the broader, you know, public and, and private sector interests? You know, when uh, when Chris Krebs was part of spinning up the agency and then, of course, now Jen Easterly at the helm, uh, these public-private partnerships have really been a focus. And I, and I think for a lot of folks on the outside, that's a bit of a, a shift. What What's the, the cultural reality as part of this of, you know, melding the government and the private sector? Yeah, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to work with Jen and and her entire team there. And I think the public-private partnership, I think, is extraordinarily valuable. And actually, interestingly, as I started doing more work with, with CISA and the CSRB, one of the things I found was lots of other entities are reaching out going, hey – might that be something that these other entities might be interested in starting up? You know, the, the Australian government is interested. The UK government is interested. Lots of them are going, hmm, maybe a public-private partnership similar to what CISA is doing would be good for them as well, right? And I think it's important because I think if you look at anything through just one lens, and, you know, I think we all kind of deep down understand this, but if you only look at it through one lens, it's that biased or, or the bias of that one view that is going to lead the way of how you how you act and how you operate. You know, if we only look at things through the lens of the way a government agency sees it, that may have a bias to how we react, respond, and make recommendations. If we only look at it through private sector, you know, financial services or manufacturing or healthcare, those are all going to have biases as well. And not necessarily that the bias is bad, but that the bias um, doesn't necessarily take consideration of what the full threat landscape is that we're trying to address. So, you know, bringing all of that together in a holistic fashion allows us to really make sure that we're we're taking everybody's interest, all the constituents, all the stakeholders, and ultimately anybody that could be at risk of a cyber attack, taking those concerns into consideration when we make, you know, recommendations for improvements. And what do you bring back to your colleagues at Verizon? You know, the time that you spend on this board, what what insights are you able to carry back? Well, I think a couple of things. One is it's always insightful and interesting to work with some of my peers at other private sector organizations. So there's a handful of us also on the board from, from you know, Microsoft, Google, and others. And so seeing and hearing what they're experiencing and bringing that back and say, hey, you know, these are things that we should look at or consider, or these might be other ways that we can partner better with some of our peers because we're hearing some of the challenges that they have and there may be solutions or, or ways in which we've addressed it. And then Similarly, on the government side of things, you know, I, I think, um, you know, sometimes people are maybe a little bit intimidated just at the sheer size of, quote, government. There's so much there and it works in so many different ways, knowing what some of those challenges are and saying, hey, you know what, this may be a way that we can work better as a partner, better as a contributor and better as a collaborator. So knowing where, you know. CISA or DHS or anyone else in government may have challenges that they need help in addressing, you know, 
we're all we're all on the same defender team, so to speak. So bringing that back and saying how can we help solve for that for me that's that's been very eye opening and and same for my team. Is your sense that this sort of a arrangement, this sort of a committee, could be a a model for you know other areas of, of government when it comes to cybersecurity, those sorts of things? Absolutely, I do. Yeah, I think I think honestly that public-private partnership I think ultimately is critical to success because so many of of the entities that I see and talk to, whether they be government or private sector, they're rarely ever limited in scope to just that. The government is constantly having to work with the private sector, right? It doesn't just work with government, right? At the end of the day, it it really serves the people. And the same thing with the private sector. They may largely be, say, a a B2B entity, but at the end of the day, they're going to be subject to government regulations. They're going to at some point touch government data or government systems, or they're going to want to pick up a government contract. And so that collaboration I see as being very, very important, and I expect that it's going to kind of ripple out. I think as people see some of the successes that CISA has had, I mean, for example, the CSRB investigation of Log4j, I think was extraordinarily successful. And uh, I think CISA and, and the CSRB got a lot of kudos for that. I expect that, that others are going to look at that and say, how do we take this and how do we replicate this in other places? All right. Well, Chris Novak, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben. Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Fittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.